Good morning and welcome again to Hiawatha Church. My name is Spencer. I'm one of the pastors here and we appreciate you uh, braving the cold and joining us this morning. We told first service they got uh, gold stars for showing up. So you guys also all get gold stars. Uh, talk to one group of people here that came here without heat in their car. They get two gold stars. But I'm not going to point them out. But great, we're, uh, great work. We're showing ourselves as true Minnesotans. Uh, also, happy Valentine's Day. Maybe you didn't know it was Valentine's Day this morning. Uh, if you didn't know, I won't be offended if you are on your phone uh, ordering your mom some flowers or making a dinner reservation, but happy Valentine's Day. I've never preached on Valentine's Day before, so it's very exciting. Uh, that was kind of sarcastic here, although love my family deep. They're very excited to celebrate Valentine's Day this afternoon. Uh, but did you know uh, Valentine's Day comes from a uh, church celebration based on a guy named St. Valentine. Uh, here's a card you could give a loved one by uh, St. Valentine. It says, uh, roses are red, violets are blue. I was beaten, stoned, and beheaded. These flowers and chocolate uh, are for you. So uh, St. Valentine, he was a bishop in the second century. Um, the Keatings here teach our church history class. So what I got was from Wikipedia. We'll see if it matches so Wikipedia says that uh, St. Valentine was a Roman bishop in the 3rd century, and he, uh, was, uh, uh, he, he ministered to persecuted Christians, martyred Christians. And so while Christians were being burned at the stake and fed to lions in the Colosseum, he was ministering to them. He was also a big evangelist and got thrown into prison, tried to convert the emperor, didn't work, got thrown in prison. And as he was about to be executed, he befriended uh, his captor, his jailer, and his jail, the, the jailer's daughter had, um, was blind. And Valentine prayed for the daughter. She became healed, and they had a, had a great friendship. So as Valentine was being led to his execution, he uh, left a note to the jailer's daughter and said, uh, signed it, from your Valentine. So legend says that's how Valentine's Day got its start. So you're celebrating a great holiday uh, today if you are celebrating it. Also, in God's providence, we are in a passage in 2 Corinthians that hits on all different kinds of love. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. Uh, we're going to see love in the context of parental love and children. We're going to see love in the context of a church family, a church community, and also romantic or marital love as well. So, uh, we usually don't do topical sermons, but this kind of lines up. So, uh, we're going to be reading uh, the 10 verses in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. You can follow along here in the screen behind me or on, in your own Bible and, uh, or your phone. All right, starting in verse 11. Paul speaking to the Corinthians. He says, I have been a fool. You forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works, for in what uh, were you less favored than the rest of the churches? Except that I myself did not burden you. Forgive me this wrong. Oops. Uh, here for the third time I am ready to come to you and I will not be a burden. For I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. 
Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and that I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. All right, so here in uh, our passage today, we're going to talk about, like I said, three different kinds of love, three, three different types of love that are biblical, that are gifts from God. But before we do that, um, I just want to kind of quick disclaimer, we're going to talk about parental love, we're going to talk about romantic love, we're going to talk about love within the context of a local church, and all of us have experiences where that love does not line up with what the, the Bible teaches, or does not look like uh, a godly or Christ-like love. So we all, you know, in, in many ways have daddy issues. So even though Paul's going to say, I was like a father to you, and this is a good thing, and God is a father to you, and that's a good thing, we all kind of have these father issues or father wounds. This is a Father's Day poster or Father's poster that says, some dads are so great, they'll blow up your planet just to teach you a valuable life lesson. So, so maybe we've had fathers like that. Or just statistically, uh, many people grow up without fathers or their fathers are absent, um, mothers uh, as well. So what I want to encourage us with today, what I think the Spirit wants to teach us today is to help us see God's good gifts and all these types of love and, and try to put our experiences behind us, at, at least for, you know, 40 minutes here this morning. Not because our experiences aren't important, but to say that we can be tainted by the, the father we grew up with or the broken romantic relationship that really hurt us or how we've been hurt by the church. We can be so hurt by that that we don't listen to what the Spirit has to say to us today and see the gifts of all different types of love that he still gives us. So I encourage us with that this morning to reimagine these types of love in the way that the Bible teaches about them, in ways that look like Jesus and not like the people in our lives that have hurt us. So it's kind of like this. Let me give you an analogy for this. It's kind of like as if I told you that uh, I had this amazing burger at Blue Door. Amazing burger. But you were not persuaded by me at all because you just kind of said, well, I've, I've, I've eaten a burger at White Castle before and it was eh, not my favorite. So I just don't like burgers. So I had one bad experience with a burger, thus burgers are horrible and I'll never eat them. So I want to encourage you to not let your White Castle burger experience uh, ruin you from ever trying something that Blue Door has to offer. And they have, they have vegan options there as well. So if you're not a carnivore, this analogy also <laughs> works for you here today. So for all of us, we have broken relationships in our past. And so the, the, the Spirit wants to speak to us and give us hope, help us reimagine what romantic and church relationships and uh, family and parental relationships can look like and how they were designed. So 
The first love that Paul brings up is he talks about love within the context of a family. He, he calls himself a, a father to this Corinthian church. So remember, historically what's going on is Paul went to a number of churches. Uh, he preached the gospel in cities that had never heard it before. People are converted. A new church is started. And he, in many ways, is their spiritual father. He's the first one to share the gospel with them. He cares for them. He leads them. He trains them. He protects them. He provides for them spiritually. And so in many ways, Paul was a father figure, especially a spiritual father figure, to the people in this church. And so he's going to uh, talk to them as if he is their spiritual father. And this, this idea of, of family love within a church is actually all over the New Testament. So Paul begins by reminding the Christians in this church how he treated them and how he treated them in a manner of a godly husband. The way he treated them looks like not just a good husband, but it looks, I'm sorry, not just a good father, but it looks like God the Father in the way that he cared for them. Verse 14, he says that when he came, he came not to be a burden and that he didn't come to seek what they had uh, or to gain what was theirs, but he came with love for them specifically. So Paul did not, what, Paul did not love them so he could get what they had, more prestige, more power, their money, their resources, their hospitality, but rather Paul came towards them with love, wanting them them as individual people, them as families within a church, them as a church, not what was theirs. And in fact, Paul's focus was, uh, you know, not even what he could get, even good things like companionship or friendship or mutual respect and love, but even more so, he gave up himself. He, he did everything possible, like it says in verse 14, to not be a burden. And then later in verse 17, implying, I didn't take advantage of you at all. Like, even though I was your spiritual father figure, even though I started the church, even though I was the first uh, Christian in your city declaring the gospel, I intentionally did not take advantage of you because I knew that that would hurt our relationship. And I knew that uh, you would not understand God the Father if I, as your father figure, were taking an advantage of you or creating a burden. And then he goes on to even more so unpack both what, what, what godly, uh, parents look like and then how that fits in here with what he's talking about verse 14 he says well think about it for children just out there in real life they're not obligated to save up for their parents but rather the other way around parents save for their kids any good parent would do that right paul is arguing so so for me i have, I have a five-year-old and a seven-year-old beautiful children who uh think about this if this would not only be silly but it would be wrong if I had a ledger, and I said, you know, Charlie and Esther, write down every single thing Dad gave to you, and you need to save up all your, your birthday and Christmas money. You've you got to do extra chores. You've got to work in the neighborhood to make money to pay me back for your room and board and food, right? Not only is that just foolish, that we would even say that's evil of a parent to hold over their head. So Paul's arguing godly parents, children don't, aren't obligated to save up for their parents, but rather... Even just by like design, parents sacrifice, give, and uh, uh, for the sake of their kids. Likewise, Paul is saying, uh, just as it's a parent's duty to sacrifice and give for the sake of its children, uh, their children, whether a mother or a father or both parents, he too is like that. In in, in even greater way, he is embodying our God 
who calls himself Father, who also interacts with us in those same ways. Paul's reminding them that it's not, uh, that he's not been their spiritual father so that they'd repay him, but rather he's been continually giving of himself in a way that resembles God the Father in the way that he continually, sacrificially gives for us. Verse 15, Paul even says, he doesn't do so only out of duty or only out of peer pressure or only out of uh, just because he has to, but rather he says, I will most gladly spend and be spent. He does so joyfully. I will give up of myself. I will be spent You know, completely without energy and exhausted, and I will spend of myself. I will give everything that is mine for you, my spiritual children, and in doing so, resemble our God. So this is what God the Father looks like. God the perfectly heaven, the perfect heavenly Father. If we want a definition of what fatherhood was created to be or what it should be, we look to God the Father, who himself is. He gives of himself, even sacrificially, for the sake of his children, just like Paul is doing here. He doesn't take or use them, but he gives of himself for their benefit. He doesn't take advantage of us, but rather wants what's best for us. He doesn't say, I'm all-powerful God, and I want you to suffer so that me uh, get, so that I get what I want, but rather, whatever God asks of us, it's for his best, and he never takes advantage of us. He does not burden us, but rather takes the burden off our shoulders and puts it on himself. We'll actually talk more about that one in a little bit as we talk about Jesus, our Savior. So Paul's saying, look to me the way I interacted with you as your spiritual father in in, in some earthly sense and know how much I love you. And when you see that, see a picture of the way that God the Father loves you. And, and is sacrificial towards you and, and wants what's best for you and will not burden you or take advantage of you. And then relatedly, us, those of us who in this room are parents, maybe you're not a parent yet, maybe you want to be a parent someday, or even if you're not a parent, maybe you work in our kids' ministry, maybe you have nieces or nephews, maybe you're a grandparent, maybe you have kids in your community group. This can be for all of us. And the way that we look like God in our parenting, right, the way that we uh, resemble God the Father and how we father and, and, and mother and, and care for our kids is through the gospel, right? And which, it's, it's what Paul's doing as well. It's what we do as uh, earthly parents as well. So things like when we are fully secure in the gospel, we won't use our kids. We won't take advantage of our kids to get an identity. If our identity is fully secure and, and firm and understood in Christ, We don't have to fully get our identity from being a mom or dad or our kids liking us or our kids not rebelling or looking like other great moms and and dads out there. Or when we know that we're fully accepted by our creator and savior, we don't desperately need the acceptance of our kids so that we give into every one of their needs and, and let our kids get spoiled because we just so much need their acceptance. Or relatedly, when we remember and realize and believe that salvation is a gift from God alone, that we can't earn it, then the burden of of our kids' salvation can be removed from our shoulders. Of course, we work tirelessly to share the gospel with our children and, and teach them. But when we remember and realize and believe that God's the one who saves, then we're freed up to love our kids 
knowing that he's the one that's going to change the heart, uh, their hearts. He's the one that's going to open up their eyes, which is such good news, right? That the burden of our kids' salvation does not rest on how great of a parent or aunt or uncle or kids' ministry teacher that we are, nor can our horrible parenting screw our kids up so much that it ties the hands of our Savior, which is such good news for us. All right, so Paul talks about family love, parental love. Then he goes on to express another type of love that's within the Corinthian church, related love as well. He tells them that he's not just a father figure uh, to them, but they are also a spiritual family. Which if you read much of the New Testament at all, you see this, this language, this reality come up all the time. So within a church, it should be marked by love. We should see each other as, as, as brothers and sisters. Not as people we're competing with or comparing ourselves against or even enemies, but rather our, our first uh, description of another Christian, especially within a, a local church, should be brother or sister. And so Paul begins to then unpack this other type of love, that is a gift from God that we receive, and that is uh, love within the context of a church. Paul calls them this word beloved. So at the end of verse 19, he speaks to them and calls them beloved or loves, loved ones. So beloved, in, in, in uh, the New Testament world and in the New, or in the New Testament, this word beloved is used exclusively of divine and Christian love, an affection begotten in the community of the new spiritual life in Christ. The beauty, unity, endearment of this love is historically unique, being peculiarly Christian. We could unpack this word and spend a lot of time on it. It's really great how it's, you know, how it, it's uniquely written about uh, a Christian community that was unbelievably diverse, and it, there's no other reason that they should have been a spiritual family, right? They had so many things not in common, and... Uh, the watching world was just so bewildered when they looked in and they saw um, the early church. But anyway, what Paul's getting at here, and we'll come back to this word beloved at the end too as well. Uh, what Paul is getting at is he's, he's telling the church, you are a church, you are a, a community that is defined by love. One, one of the names of what you are is you are beloved. And this type of love that, that has not only brought you together, but should also be a descriptor of who you are, and how you treat each other and see each other. Later on, uh, or in the, same, in the same verse too, Paul helps the church understand the point of this church love, this point of familial love. It says that it is all for your upbringing, your upbuilding, your encouragement, your unity, your edification. We've seen Paul bring up this, this phrase and this whole idea earlier actually in 2 Corinthians 2 where he uh, reminded the church the point of Jesus equipping and, and putting leaders within a local church, the point of that, the goal of that is your upbuilding, the same phrase. The, the reason Jesus designs his church with pastors and leaders is in order to strengthen you, in order to build you up and encourage you and make you stronger in the faith. Relatedly, Paul is telling them too that the way that, the, the, one of the main ways, if not the main way that the church loves each other, the way that this familial church love uh, gets played out is through speaking in Christ, is through sharing the gospel with each other over and over and over again in, in millions of different ways, both verbally and through actions. 
And then Paul goes on to say, but I'm afraid when I show up, even though you, church, are defined and created because of this great love, this love that comes out of the gospel, I'm afraid that when I show up, there's going to be other things there than love, that there's going to be these great enemies, these great uh, actions that are at odds with your love for each other. Verse 20, Paul says, For I fear that perhaps when I come to you, I may not find you as I wish, uh, uh, and that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling and jealousy and anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. We don't have time to unpack all of these, so I think it would be a great activity uh, to, you know, with your, your family or friends or community group this week. Unpack these, what is it, seven, uh, eight different enemies of love within the church. Talk about how uh, we're tempted to do these things, how we're tempted to slander against other believers or have anger or unforgiveness towards them or how we have conceit against other believers within the church. We don't have time for that today, but it would be a great practice for you to do. What, what does Paul say are the great enemies of unity within the church and love for your brothers and sisters in Christ? So in contrast to these, what are the opposite of these things? So if Paul says these are the enemies of love within a church, what should be in a church? Uh, what are marks that love is actually in a church, that, that Christians are, are loving each other? It's things like the opposite of quarreling, jealousy, anger, etc. It's things like unity and love, and joy, and peace, which if you know much about the New Testament, you know that these are actually called the fruits of the Spirit. It's, it's very, very similar. So Paul is arguing that when a church is filled with the Spirit, when a church is marked by, by Christian gospel-centered love, that naturally the fruit of the Spirit will express and demonstrate and declare love within a church. But Paul doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just say, here are some great dangers to love within the church. Quarreling and, and, and conceit and disorder and uh, slander, etc. But he also describes sexual sin. So in the next verse, he says, he continues on by saying, I'm afraid that when I show up at Corinth, not only are you guys going to be fighting and, and slandering each other and there's disunity, but I'm also afraid that when I show up, that all this gospel love, all this gospel work, the health of, of your church is going to be destroyed and harmed by sexual sin. Verse 21, he says, I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you and that I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, the sexual immorality, and the sensuality or that word just means eagerness for lustful pleasure that they have practiced. So if you know anything about this church in Corinth, if you've read 1 Corinthians, the, the first letter that Paul wrote back to this church, this church was just plagued and filled with all types of sexual sin. Whether it was just, you know, random sexual sin or whether it was things like prostitution or infidelity or even one man sleeping with his stepmother. And this church wasn't just doing it, but they were even boasting about it. So if you read 1 Corinthians, you see Paul addressing that type of sin. They were saying, hey, we're under grace. We don't, we, we, we don't have to do anything to earn God's salvation. So let's just brag about our sin because more sin equals more grace, right? And Paul has very strong words against that, as you can guess. So when Paul says here, this, uh, they have not repented of 
the impurity, sexual immorality, and, and sensuality that they had practiced. He's talking about what actions and, and, and things that had defined the church before. So, before we unpack this verse 21, where we talk about why uh, this sexual sin is a problem, and this is a question, um, this is a question, I thought it was like, this is a question that uh, the, the church in Corinth was asking. This is a question that people in the first century in the Greek and Roman world were asking. This is a question uh, our city is asking. Like, why, why are Christians such prudes around sex? Or why does the Bible speak so strongly about all different types of sex? Why are they so old-fashioned? Why is God such a killjoy? So it's a great question that we ask ourselves, that our, that our city asks, that the people in uh, this same church asked as well. We're going to get to that in just a second. But before we unpack why sexual sin is such a big deal, first, let's look at uh, romantic love as a gift. So first see how it's supposed to be, and that'll help us understand why Paul's so afraid that this sexual sin is going to ruin and hurt and destroy the church. So the first thing is just looking at these things, the uh, sex, marriage, singleness, and gender. And to see that all these things are actually gifts. Gifts from God. Gifts that God created, designed, and gave to humanity. Good things that God designed and gave to us uh, for our enjoyment and for our flourishing. And these are gifts which remind us and imply that these were given and not earned. We don't deserve good gifts. We didn't, don't work hard and then are guaranteed a wage, but rather these are gifts given to God. If you want to, and we don't have time to unpack this, but if you want to know more about how each one of these things are gifts, we actually did a whole sermon series on this a few years ago called uh, Sex, Gender, Marriage, and the Gospel. So if you want to learn more about why these are good things and how they're good things, I'd encourage you to go check out that sermon series, but we just don't have time to, to do that today, more than just say these are good things. So let's just talk about sex as a, as a good gift from God because we see that that's not happening in the Corinthian church and it's a really big deal to Paul. So the first thing we need to just remember is if we look at the very beginning of the Bible in the creation account, sex is given to humanity as a gift. So God creates humanity, a man and a woman. He marries them, he brings them together and he puts them in paradise without shame, without clothes, and he says, enjoy each other. You are married. Have pleasure. And he says, uh, fill the earth and subdue it. Have babies. Enjoy each other. And in this, in, in God's creation, remember this is before sin enters the world, there was no shame, there was no sin, there was no coercion or abuse, no insecurity, no selfishness, no danger, but rather just others-focused fulfilling, safe, intimate sex within the context of a lifelong marriage. And then as we uh, read the Bible, so that, that's how God created this good gift. As we read the Bible, we see that God uses this idea, this creation, this gift of marriage uh, for something more than just human flourishing, more than just procreation. But he uses this as one of the most powerful analogies and symbols of his relationship his love for his people. So in the Old Testament, God calls himself uh, his people. He calls himself Israel's husband. 
and Israel is uh, the wife uh, multiple times in the Old Testament. And then the New Testament, it becomes even more clear uh, and more kind of narrowed down that marriage is a picture of Jesus and his relationship specifically to the church, which is called the bride of Christ. We see this a bunch of places in the New Testament, but especially in Ephesians uh, 5. Ephesians 5, so this is Paul writing to another church. He starts by quoting something back in Genesis, quoting the creation account uh, and quoting what happens when he, when, when a man, or quoting the creation of marriage. So this first, in quotes here, this first verse is taken from uh, Genesis. So Paul writes in Ephesians 5, he says, he quotes Genesis, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he helps us understand what's going on there. He says, this mystery is profound. Marriage is profound. And I'm saying that marriage refers to Christ and his church. So just like God was symbolic of a husband to, to his people, Israel, uh, as his wife, similarly, uh, Christ is called, uh, uh, um, Christ calls himself the bridegroom. He calls himself a husband. He calls the church symbolically his bride. So marriage is a reflection, a picture of the gospel. Uh, Sam Alberry, who is an author and I forget what his role is right now. He's been a, a priest and uh, Anglican priest and some other stuff as well. But he writes about this. He says, marriage shows us the shape of the gospel. So he says, marriage shows us uh, the shape of the gospel. Hel marriage helps us understand what the gospel is all about. It's about a loving, sacrificial uh, husband figure that dies to himself in order for his, his bride figure to grow and, and flourish, which is the church. And he continues, he says, also, singleness shows us its sufficiency. Singleness shows us the sufficiency of the gospel. And so even though if you are single, and many in the room are, and Many of us will also be single later on in life if, our, if we get divorced or our, our spouse dies or something like that. But even though we might value marriage a lot or seek marriage, we can still see singleness as a, a way that in our lives it, it pictures, it demonstrates, it shows that the gospel is enough. The gospel is sufficient. So in singleness, the way that, like, like Alberry is saying, again, who himself is single, singleness shows us the sufficiency of, of the gospel by, by ways like this. We are full and sufficient and enough even without a romantic relationship. So just like the Apostle Paul was, who, who, who was single himself. Uh, just like Jesus, who also was single. As singles, we don't need to be sexually active in order to prove ourselves or in order to have a full human life as if we're missing out on something we need in order to have a, a full or complete human life or experience. Again, we just look to Christ who himself was not sexually active, who, who himself lived the most full human life ever, yet was still single. And this is where Alberry kind of brings it together to help us see how the gospel shows us or shows sufficiency in singleness. He says, through Christ, the ultimate groom, the, the perfect eternal husband figure, we have everything we could ever imagine or want or need in an ultimate type way. 
So everything that we all desire to have in a romantic relationship or in a spouse, we're guaranteed that in Christ through, through faith in the gospel. We're guaranteed that. We cannot lose that. So through Christ, we have acceptance. We have appreciation. We have unconditional love. We have companionship. We have protection. We have affection. We have friendship. We have pleasure. We have joy. And we have safety. Shane Claiborne uh, was single for a long time and wrote about it. And in that he also, in that season of life, he wrote this. He says, we can live without sex, but we cannot live without love. And that's what Jesus promises us. Or that's what Jesus offers to us. He doesn't promise you that if you follow him, you'll be guaranteed a spouse or guaranteed a perfect marriage or guaranteed great sex. But he does promise you him, which is, and it's hard to believe at times, but he is the greatest version of all those things that we want and need in the human relationship. We are promised that in Christ. So, why is this such a big deal? Why is sexual sin so important that Paul gets all up in arms about it and Jesus speaks so strongly against it? and It's all over the New Testament. Romantic love and sexual activity is a gift, but it is like a fire. It is life-giving and powerful. So think about today, right now. If you go home and you didn't have a fire in your house, somehow you might freeze to death today, right? We need fire to live and to survive and to flourish. We need fire to cook our foods. Yet, fire, just like romantic love and sexual activity, can cause great harm when not in the right boundaries. So once the fire jumps from the fireplace, it moves from life-giving to harmful and even life-taking. Life taking. Once the fire jumps from your stovetop to your cupboards and counter and kitchen, it moves from life-giving to harmful and even life-taking. So the gift of romantic love, when not used in the way that God has designed, can move from life-giving and fulfilling and a gift to harmful and dangerous and even life-threatening. So again, this question, why is sexual sin such a big deal? It's a question that it's okay that you're asking. Hopefully you don't stay there, but this is a question, like I said, the, the people in the ancient world asked, uh, the church in Corinth asked, uh, people in our city are asking, why do Christians see sex and relationships different than us? And, and many of us are asking those same questions. It's okay to ask these questions, so let's answer them. What does the Bible say? Why is sexual sin such a big deal? If it's such a gift, why is this such a a problem. And the first reason is, and we're going to look at two reasons, and there's many more, but we, we're going to especially hit on two. First reason is that it hurts people. It hurts people. It hurts real people that are created in God's image that have uh, unbelievable value and worth. Whether it's a one-night stand, whether it's infidelity, whether it's lust or abuse or adultery or manipulation or any other type of sexual activity outside of others-focused heterosexual marriage for a lifetime. With sexual sin, there is always a victim. Always a victim. And, and often more than one. If you want more on this, I know we're kind of just flying through some of this stuff and we just don't have time to unpack it all, but if you're not fully convinced or maybe you just want more info, we've preached on lots of this before, so if you are interested uh, in our Genesis series, in Genesis 12, 
we preached on sex trafficking. Genesis 34, we preached on rape and murder. In our Judges sermon series, we preached on this horrible abuse and, and, and rape. Um, and we've also preached on the Me Too movement in our Big Questions series. And then that six-week series on, on uh, marriage, gender, and the gospel as well. So if you want more, I'd, I'd encourage you to go back and uh, listen to any of those or just come talk to me. But again, the first reason why sexual sin is such a big deal is because it hurts people. It dehumanizes them. It objectifies them. It makes them a means to an end. Even if it's consensual, you're still looking at that person as just an object or, or someone that can just give you pleasure without really wanting what's best for them. And not only that, but sex was created as a gift for lifelong healthy marriage, etc., etc. So if that's how it's created, and if we trust God that he knows what he's doing, anything outside of that is going to be harmful, spiritually harmful, physically harmful. And not just for the other person, but also for yourself. So to answer this question, why is sexual sin such a big deal? Just like with anything, gifts outside of the correct context move from being gifts to being harmful. So think about this. Pouring perfume in your eyes turns that gift from being something great and beautiful into something dangerous and harmful. Or eating a dozen roses, stem and all, takes a beautiful gift and turns it into something that leads you bleeding and torn up in your throat and esophagus. So uh, gifts taken out of context move from being gifts to being things that are harmful. Jackie Hill Perry, who's a uh, spoken word artist and, and rapper and author writes about this. She says, sin, when in the body, cannot stay put. It's not a guest that stays in one room, making sure not to disturb others. It's a tenant that lives in everything and goes everywhere. It can bleed into every part, choking out anything unholy. And that's how Jesus in the New Testament and Paul speak about sexual sin. And it was such severity that Jesus says unthinkable things like, if you're tempted to lust, cut off your hand. It's better that you enter the kingdom of God dismembered than uh, enter hell because you, your right hand was causing you to sin or gouge out your eye or whatever it might be. It's such a big deal that Jesus calls us to, to die to our old selves because sexual sin, among other sin, brings us away from our Savior and leads us towards hell. So a big reason Paul's saying, I don't want to see this in this church that I deeply love is because all this sexual sin is hurting people. It's dehumanizing people. It's hurting them physically and spiritually and emotionally and relationally. But it's not just hurting people, but it's also telling the wrong story. It's telling the wrong story. So if like we said earlier, if God designed marriage and gender and sex and singleness, if he designed all that to be a picture of, of his relationship with his people, when we do anything outside of the way that he designed it, it goes from de de declaring and demonstrating and, and telling a story about who God is and about what the gospel is. It moves from that to being an anti-gospel. To, to defaming the gospel, to telling lies about who Jesus is, what type of a savior he is, how he feels about us, and how the church responds 
to that. So if Jesus is an example, or if a, a husband is an example of the way that Jesus loves and cares for and dies to himself to, to make his bride flourish, and the, uh, a wife is supposed to be a picture of, an example of, the way the church responds and respects and submits to uh, Jesus, then anything outside of that is going to tell a lie. So there's a few examples of this to, to make this a little more practical. When a husband cheats on his wife, the story that that tells, that both that husband and wife see and experience, and anyone who sees this, the story that they see is that Jesus will leave you when you're not performing enough or when you're not pleasing him because that's the way the husband treated this wife as he cheated on her. He'll ditch you to find someone else, so you better be perfect or else. Right? right? What a horrible lie. Jesus is not like this at all, right? He doesn't say, perform for me or else I'll just go find a better bride. But Jesus is faithful and consistent and forgiving. Or if a wife cheats on her husband, what story does that tell? It tells the story that, well, Jesus, he isn't really worth our fidelity. We don't need to be faithful to him. We can kind of use him to get some good stuff out of it. But then when we've gotten all that we need, we can just kind of discard him and move on and find something else in this world that is worth pursuing. Or what is sexual abuse or sex trafficking? What story does that tell? It tells us the story that Jesus doesn't love you fully, nor will he sacrifice for you. He's only using you as a means to an end. He will hurt you. He will manipulate you. He will take from you. He's someone we should be terrified of or that we can never truly love. That's what Sexual abuse tells. That's a story that it tells. A real quick aside here that's really important to say, abuse is never okay, to be very clear. Abuse, any type of abuse, including abuse within a romantic relationship, within a marriage. And so if that is you, even though maybe you are trying to reconcile or you want to forgive your partner who is abusive, uh, it's not okay. And, and we want to be there for you. As a church, we want to help you. So if this is you, we want to strongly encourage you to find someone that you trust. Talk to a pastor. Talk to Emily Kleiber, who's on staff with us in our counseling ministry. Let your community group leader find, find a trusted voice and let them uh, know. No one, no one should endure abuse, thinking that what they're doing is just trying to be more godly or that bringing it up is you not forgiving them or you not being um, like Jesus. So abuse sinful, wrong, never okay. And uh, we want to encourage you, if, if this is you or you know someone who's going through this, encourage them to seek out help uh, within the church um, or outside of the church. All right, just a couple more. What about sex outside of marriage? Why is this such a big deal to Paul? Such a big deal to Jesus. Sex outside of marriage says that Jesus uses you while you can please him, that he's not really in it for the long haul. Right? So think of one night stands or, or you know, friends with benefits or, or, or pornography. What, what that's saying, when a, when a guy is doing that, it's saying Jesus is like that. He won't commit to you. He'll, he'll kind of enjoy you for a few moments, but he will not stick with you to the end. But that he might look for something better. So sexual sin tells the wrong story. It tells anti-gospels. It tells lies. All right, hard stuff. Hard stuff to hear, hard stuff to work through, and, and Paul is okay with it being hard because it's 
so important, yet he doesn't leave us without hope. Jesus does not leave us without hope. But first of all, let me just talk to, if, if you're married in this room and you're in a hopeless spot, maybe you feel like there's not hope, maybe your marriage feels really, really rocky, maybe there's lots of sin, let me just encourage you with one thing, statistically, and then we'll get to Jesus, which is way more important. But Tim Keller in his book on marriage writes, uh, most striking of all uh, longitudinal studies, don't know how to say that word, uh, demonstrate that two-thirds of those unhappy marriages out there will become happy within five years if the people stay married and don't get divorced. So even just statistically out there, you might have a horrible marriage, think it's hopeless, yet most people who stick it out eventually will find happiness. And so don't, don't feel like there is no hope that divorce is the best option. There, there are some biblical grounds for divorce, but um, just, just be encouraged that lots of people go through really, really hard marriages, yet they end up happy eventually through the Spirit working in them, through Christian community, through counseling, things like that. But even more important than just statistics, let's look to Jesus. So all of us in this room have sinned sexually, whether in our pasts, whether physically, whether just in our thoughts or our minds or our motives or with our words. So for all of us in this room, there is hope for us. Jesus offers through the gospel healing. Jesus offers us forgiveness. Jesus offers us new life. He offers us purity. He offers us hope and meaning all through the gospel. So let's wrap up by looking at the love of Christ. So everything Paul brought up today, love between a parent and a child, love within the context of a church, love that's romantic or marital, all those loves are an example or a whisper, just a taste of the love that Jesus offers us all. All those things are great, right? All three of those are gifts from God. All those should be celebrated. Yet those are just a White Castle burger that's been sitting on the counter for three days compared to the Blue Door burger that is Jesus' love. Or put in tofu burger if you're a vegetarian or something. Today, Jesus is speaking these same words to you today. Words that Paul spoke over the church in Corinth, Jesus is saying to you today. Like Paul said to the Corinthian church, Jesus says to you, put, put your name in here, in your head, if that would help. Make it be very personal, very real. Jesus says to you, I will not be a burden, Christian. Or even if you're not a Christian here today, he's speaking this to you today. For I seek not what's yours, but you. Jesus wants you. He doesn't want what you can give him. He doesn't want your works your money, your potential ministry that you could build for him, your hours of service. Jesus wants you. He's not trying to use you or take advantage of you or just likes you because of what you can produce. He wants you. And Jesus is telling you today, I will take on the crushing burden, every burden you have, and I will put it on my own shoulders. And the burden I give you is light. And easy. Jesus is also speaking Paul's words just a few verses later to us today. He's telling you, I will gladly spend myself, or I have already gladly spent myself 
and all I have for you, even though it seems that the more I love you, the less you love me. What a great word. Jesus' love for you, for us, is not dependent on how well you perform or, or stay in his love. Romans uh, 5 talks about that while we were still weak, that's when Christ died for us. That when we were still sinners, that's when Christ died for us. Just like Jesus is saying here today, even though the more I love you, the more you seem to pull away, or the more you think you don't need my love, I will still love you. I will gladly spend everything. I will be poor, I will be naked, I will be shamed, I will be abandoned. I will take your punishment, your burden, I will hang on a cross, lonely and despised and rejected by God the Father for you. That's Jesus' love. As we end here today, we're going to look from, we're going to read a passage from 1 John that different, one of Jesus' disciples writes about the same thing, writes to a church and says, this is why marital love, romantic love, church love, parental love should be among us as a church because Christ first loved us. 1 John 4 says, and again uses this great word, beloved. Loved ones, church that is defined and created by divine love. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world that we might have life through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. We love because he first loved us. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you first loved us. Apart from that, we would be screwed. We would be selfish. We would be self-focused. We would be independent, running away from you. So we thank you, God, that you first loved us. God, we pray that our relationships, all different kinds, that we would express that love to, to our spouses, to our families, to our church family, to our parents, to our neighbors, to strangers. God, help the love that we have received in Christ to be what motivates us and, and empowers us to love others. Pray for those in this room who haven't believed yet that they would see and understand uh, this, this divine, eternal love that you offer for them. May it be real and, and powerful and life-changing for them as well. We pray this in your powerful and saving name, Jesus. Amen.